Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. Joining us on the star line is a man with one of the most unique resumes I've ever seen. He's been a crime and political investigative reporter for many years. He's said in covering online poker and now the producer of the Murder Etc. podcast. My friend Brad Willis, welcome. Thank you. Couldn't be happier about talking to a friend today. Let's go beyond the mic. Born, as you would say, quote, the shadow of the Ozark Mountains, unquote, you spent two decades in Missouri. How did your early years prepare you for your career? You know, I grew up with uh, a man who I considered maybe one of the world's first rubberneckers, despite the fact he was never a police officer, an attorney, or a paramedic of any sort. If there was any sort of weird tragedy and or uh, excitement going on around town, he would be the first to go to it. And when a thunderstorm rolled in, he wouldn't take us underground. He would take us out to watch it roll in across Oklahoma or Kansas. And that was probably the foundation for me and how I ended up chasing craziness around the world. Well, you started in radio, moved into TV covering crime and politics. What intrigued you about this beat? I think more than anything, I, I find the search for justice and or the creation of the laws that make it fascinating. I started chasing a, a spree killer around Missouri with the cops early in my career back in the mid-1990s. I found myself inside their command post and they just let me be and let me do my thing. That was the first moment I realized that this was what I was going to probably end up doing in one fashion or another was uh, chasing the adrenaline, whether it was a killer or a poker game across the world. Did you get them? Somebody got him eventually. He got a nice water patrol guy, ended up uh, shooting him. The, the, the crazy thing about that night was that I got to the hospital where they had the person shot and they had locked it down entirely. Nobody could get in or out. Janitor just for some reason let me in and I came in through the basement. And the next thing I knew, I was standing there in the ER waiting room with all the cops that were waiting to see if this guy would live or die. And I got the story back to the hometown from the hospital. It was pretty cool. Next, you went and covered poker tournaments around the world from Europe, Central America, South America, Asia, Caribbean, and here in North America. There's got to be a great story. How did you get this gig? Strangely enough, friend of a friend of a friend realized that uh, I wrote about poker. I was writing about poker while I was in television. I wrote under an assumed name. I wrote under the, na- the name Otis. Just so happened that a fairly well-known writer, actor, activist in every way named Will Wheaton, who people know from Stand By Me all the way up to the Big Bang Theory. And I didn't know at the time that he was reading my poker writing. And when a company called Poker Stars asked him to go write about a poker tournament, he didn't have the time, but having never met me before, went ahead and recommended me to do so. And the next thing I know, I'm down in the Bahamas writing about poker for a week. And at the end of that week, they said, hey, Brad, would you like to do this for the rest of your life? And I said, well, I'll do it for a while. And next thing I know, I was in Denmark writing about poker. You won awards from the AP, Southeast Regional Emmy Awards, South Carolina Broadcasters Association, and the National Headliners Awards. I did. I tell you, the awards never really did anything. I tried to be inspired by them, but at the same time, I felt like if I were fighting for awards the whole time, that I wasn't actually going to be out there getting the stories. But I did have this moment. The one that ended up meaning the most to me, I think, is was the National Headliner Award uh, for a piece that I did in television for a while. And it meant a lot to me because I was doing my best to try to prove to myself or to my father that being a journalist was just as valuable as being a doctor or a lawyer. And I realized in the end that he didn't need that proof, but I still needed to prove it to him. So he got to sit in a room with a bunch of high-powered journalists, you know, seeing his son accept the Best of Show Award for something that Tom Brokaw had won not too many years before that. And that that was the time to where, you know, I rode up in the elevator with my father and a big time anchor from CNN and seeing your dad proud of you about the only thing that uh, I think a boy ever really needs. There is one story you covered in your career as a journalist, the report of a man convicted as a cop killer who is about to be released on parole from prison. You wrote in a short essay, quote, if I wasn't doing my job today, there was a chance he could have gotten out and gone before anyone knew, unquote. That man was Charles Wakefield Jr. 
When you took on that story, did you think it would be the defining story of your career? At the time, no. At the time, I thought I'd done a really good job for the community for, by keeping a killer in, in prison, or at least playing a role in uh, informing the public that had been let out. And on that day, I thought, you know, I've done my job for the community today. It gave me faith in my journalistic abilities again, and I had hoped to go back out and do it again the next day. It was only a few weeks later that I realized that the man that uh, stayed in prison after my report was a man that many people uh, believe was innocent. I had that started a research project that began in 2001 and continues today. Well, you spent that next 18 years trying to make good for that one moment. In the end, I realized that a lot had happened back in 1975, Greenville, South Carolina, that people don't remember. Didn't remember a year later. All they remembered was that there was a law enforcement officer who had been killed and that a man went to prison for it. That's all they needed. And they didn't know the backstory, and nor did I on the day that I reported the story the first time. And over the course of the last 20 years, I've done a lot of research to discover exactly what did happen in 1975 prior to the murder of a man named uh, Lieutenant Frank Looper and his father Rufus, as well as the ultimate conviction of a man, Charles Wakefield Jr., 35 years that he spent in prison after that. Throughout this time, how has this case impacted your outlook on people? You know, I think I love the community that I live in a lot. I still live in Greenville, South Carolina. I want to believe that people are always out for the betterment of their own community, as well as their brothers and sisters who live around them. That's what I would love to believe is something we all share. At the same time, when you realize there's been an injustice in the community, and some people don't care to see it, don't care to recognize it, that makes me uncomfortable in a way to where you know, I think I would like to know a lot about my family legacy, whether it's good or bad. And I think if you live in a community, it's a lot like your family. And the legacy of uh, that community is sort of your personal legacy, whether you grew up there or you just choose to live there. And I hope that, you know, people can understand that and feel the same way. Because if, if you don't want to really know your history, then you really don't want to know who you are today. You talk about the bad side of Greenville. Isn't there a bad side to every city in America? You know, I think there is. I don't know that I realized it when I was growing up. I grew up in a really sheltered community of Springfield, Missouri, where I, you know, I saw there were bad things that happened, but it seemed very, very nice. Then I moved to Jackson, Mississippi, which is a really tough town to live in a lot of ways. Greenville, South Carolina, for a while, it seemed like the idyllic community that maybe had a few little problems. It had a lot more than I knew, but it was only after I started this story that I heard from people who lived in towns all over the world. It doesn't matter, you know, where you live, there is a bad side and there are bad things that happen. But I don't think that necessarily makes it fine just because they exist everywhere else. You know, my grandfather was born in, uh, in a little town of Post, Texas. My father was born in Houston, Texas. You know, the story that I cover goes from Texas to uh, all the way across the south of uh, the entire United States. And there are towns from here to there that all have these issues. And you know, it just so happens this is the one that I live in. During the podcast, you discuss the unexpected relationships between the good guys and the, quote, bad guys. How have these relationships changed your outlook on humanity and the pursuit of justice? What I'd like to think is that all the good guys are good guys and all the bad guys are bad guys. But uh, there was a, a man who was the son of one of the most famous judges in this town. Uh, when I called somebody a bad guy one day, he stopped me in mid-sentence and said, there is no such thing as a bad guy. There are people who went to jail. Yeah, it's something that I've come to appreciate and know. I mean, I've had people in my own family who you know, could have been considered bad guys, who I know are good guys. And I know that there are good guys in the police departments all over the place, but there are also a few bad guys as well. 
in the story that I've been working on, the interaction between those, at least back in the 1970s, was a lot greater than I think anyone would ever be comfortable with, either back then or now. I believe vast majority of law enforcement officers are out for the public good and working as hard as they can for way too little money. And I believe there's a lot of bad guys out there who have a lot of good. And I think if we could find a way to reconcile all of those things uh, into one and realize that we're all just people that uh, we're looking to get by. And if we can find a way to um, look out for each other, a lot more the really bad guys or the really bad good guys do, then we'll be a lot better off. He's the producer of the Murder Etc. podcast. Brad Willis joins us beyond the mic. You've spent days, months, perhaps almost a year with Charles Wakefield Jr. What kind of man is he? He's a strong man, and not just because he's very tall and very well-built and works out every day at age 65. The man has a strength of spirit and heart uh, unlike any I know. You know, I would never claim to be an advocate for him because I'm, I'm approaching this from a, a journalistic objective side, but just on a subjective level, having met the man, he is very, very strong. And any person who could never admit that he committed the crime the entire time he was there, he has great patience, he has great strength, and the man has great faith. And I think those three things have carried him through. The 750-page police file seemed to be a mountain of hay. How many times did you get stuck with a needle? Radically, I would read through it once and I would find one needle. And then I would read through it another time and I would find a couple other needles. And then other times I'd just be reading it because I had nothing better to do at night. And I would, and at one point I literally jumped off the couch and it was a eureka moment and said, that's it. And my wife looked at me a little bit strange because I'd been quiet for an hour. Uh, but that, that police file was absolute gold. And still today, I mean, having read it probably a hundred times or more, I still find new things that when I go back. How many times has your life been threatened while looking into this case? I won't say that my life has ever been threatened, fortunately. However, the number of times it's been suggested that it would be a lot safer for me to stop working on this, at least numbers on more fingers than I have currently. It's not just, you know, people that I know say you need to stop working on it. And the ones that scare me are the people who uh, email or leave messages anonymously to say, you need to stop working on this. It's too hot right now. And this is, you know, 45 years after the fact. How has your life been impacted by those threats? It's interesting. I was always either very brave or very naive and never worried so much about what working on a story would do to me, because at the time I never really cared so much what happened to me. I, I never had what people would call a fear of death or a fear of personal injury. Uh, but it was only after I had a family that I had to really start considering what doing things like this would do. I'll be perfectly honest that, you know, before I even announced that I was going to do this, we had a literal family meeting with, you know, my wife and two kids sitting around a table talking about, you know, should we do this? Can we all do this together? And if so, what do we do to keep ourselves safe when we do? And the number of security measures that we put in place to make sure that we were all safe, um, you know, not just me, but uh, everybody in this family is probably beyond what anyone would ever consider reasonable, but at the same time keeps us safe and that just lets me sleep at night. Has this case caused you to be a little more paranoid? I've never been paranoid in my life until now. And now the number of times that strange things have happened that uh, ultimately were just those strange coincidences, but I've, I've investigated to the end to make sure that's all they were is amazing. I went to interview somebody once and nobody except my, me and one other person knew I was going to be there. And when I left, a secretary handed me the business card of a police officer who had no reason to understand or believe that I would be there. And I had to figure out how he knew exactly where I was when I was on the 10th floor of a building and hadn't announced to anyone I was there. The other day, I went to have a lunch with somebody else. And there was somebody sitting in a parking lot, what looked like recording me with their phone as they came out. 
And I spent 45 minutes watching that person after I thought they were watching me. And it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but the number of times that I go through my pickup, uh, through the bed of it, through underneath every seat to make sure that nothing's been put in it is uh, more than I would be comfortable talking about in public because uh, people would think I'm absolutely crazy. It also says something when the sheriff calls your former job where you haven't worked in 13 years. Tell me about Brad Willis. That was the most uncomfortable thing that happened. Uh, that happened when I had reached out to a man who was doing life in federal prison to ask him if he would work with me on this project. Before I got an official response from him on whether he would, I got uh, an email from my old boss at the TV station I worked at telling me that the sitting sheriff of the county had called to ask about me. A man who I hadn't spoken to in nearly 20 years was asking about me. You know, after two weeks of being completely paranoid about it, I finally just called the sheriff and said, Sheriff, I, I need to know, why are you asking about me? And as it turns out, he was asking about me because the man who was doing life in federal prison asked him to. And that began quite a little journey to figure out exactly how that would ever come to pass. But uh, I eventually got an explanation, or at least what passes as one. He is the producer of the Murder Etc. podcast. Brad Willis joins us beyond the mic. Well, everyone's going to ask, how did you come up with the name Murder Etc.? I did everything I could to try to not name this something stupid. I came up with some really cool names. And every time I got to a cool name, it just sounded too cool. But I didn't want to call it anything with murder. And I didn't want to call it anything that sounded corny. And yet here I end up calling it murder. But there's a very good reason behind that. And it's because when I sat down at the courthouse to start researching this, they had a giant ledger. It was all the people within a certain number of years who'd been arrested for anything. And next to Charles Wakefield Jr.'s name, a man who had been accused and convicted of double murder and armed robbery were the words murder, etc. And it occurred to me how absolutely blasé it was to refer to this crime of, if not the century, at least the decade in Greenville, South Carolina, you know, using an etc. And, and an abbreviated version of etc. no less. Once I realized that the story went far beyond the murders and far beyond the armed robberies to a much greater story that was happening around Greenville, I realized that etc. It's a lot more important. So uh, despite my best efforts to call it anything other than that, it became murder, et cetera. Have you had a conversation with someone guilty in this crime, murder or the cover up? I would like to say that I know that for a fact. I know that I've communicated with people who uh, are considered suspects, at least by the people who don't believe Charles Wakefield did it. There are people who believe Charles Wakefield actually did it. And I've had more conversations with him than I can count. I can tell you that I've had a number, dozens and dozens of conversations with people committed crimes surrounding this one uh, that um, have been very valuable sources of information, have been very helpful. Do you think that Charles Wakefield Jr. will ever get justice? And what is justice for Charles Wakefield Jr.? You know, a lot of people would like to think because he was paroled in 2010 after 35 years that he's free, but he's not. And he'll tell you that because despite the fact he was freed from prison, he was not pardoned and he was not exonerated officially. He's on parole, which means he still has to ask permission to go anywhere. He has to ask permission to go to a, the amusement park that's like 10 miles from his house. He's afraid to come to Greenville, South Carolina. He's afraid the law enforcement people here will do everything they can to get him back in prison. He's not free. To say what his exoneration or freedom would mean for him, what I do know right now is that uh, Charles Wakefield Jr. is seeking a pardon through the state of South Carolina, uh, and that is one option that is available to him. He's exhausted the vast majority of his legal appeals. 
In terms of exoneration, uh, that is something that, you know, this is officially a closed case and there is no law enforcement department currently working, as far as I know, to look at anything else. So my current hope right now is that what I can do is tell this story in the best possible way I can and allow the public to understand what happened in and around the murders. And if they do, then at that point, it, my job is done. If that ends up allowing Charles to have some justice or what he feels is justice, because I've helped people understand what the truth is, uh, then that'll make me very happy. But right now, you know, I'm not doing my best not to work as an advocate. The only thing I'm an advocate for is the truth. This started out as a uh, one-man crusade, and then it became a two-man crusade, and now there are people all around the world that are trying to help you help this case. It's been so gratifying to me to realize that there are so many people who want to help, you know, not just financially to help me recoup the thousands of dollars that I spent to put this thing together, but they literally want to help with the investigation. They take some of the documents that, uh, you know, I've used and they, they start doing their own research. They research through the news and they come up with their own theories. You know, we started a group called Amateurs, et cetera, which is a, a, basically a riff on a line from an old sheriff here in Greenville County. They, they work literally every day on trying to find new things in this and they've formed a community of their own to try to help me. And between that and the people who've helped from around the world, both financially uh, and just or just in terms of emotional support or, or sharing the show with everybody, and even you, you know, being willing to, you know, interview me and put me on your show as well. I mean, this, this, that kind of help spreads the word of what's happening here in Greenville, South Carolina, and I couldn't be more gratified. Joining us on the Star Line, producer of the Murder Etc. podcast, Brad Willis. So how can people help you? Right now, what people can do is they can listen to the show. They can find it at murderetcetrapodcast.com and anywhere they find their podcast as well. can listen, and if they like it, they can share it. They share it with their friends, share it with as many people as possible, review it as well as they can. If they feel so moved and they'd like to support the show, we have donation options uh, on the website itself. So all the music that you play, it's either you, your son... Every, everything that is on the show for um, all 20 episodes is either something that I've played myself, produced myself. There are some parts to where you'll hear a few riffs that my 15-year-old son has put together, some of the percussions, my, my younger son, who's just learning to be a drummer. Time is running out, and you might be a friend, but you're not getting past the rocking aid. It's the first, <laughs> right. it's, the, it's the first thing that comes to your mind. No pressure. All right. If you weren't a reporter, you would have been a? FBI agent. Tell me right now just a cherished special moment that you've had with your kid recently. I got to sit with my son as he sat on top of a cajon, which is a little drum device, and uh, kicked out a beat for me uh, and some music that I produced for Murder, Etc. And my other son came in and sat down with a guitar and played a riff that uh, ended up becoming part of a song for the show as well. That's probably the two best things that's happened. What app do you hate but you use anyway? Snapchat. And I only use it to keep track of my son. Last movie that made you cry? Oh, that's a hard one. I don't cry at movies. You didn't cry at Rudy? I mean, I maybe. I mean, I guess I always cry at Rudy. <laughs> now that's, that's so. I, I try to think back to all the movies that do make me cry. Songs make me cry uh, all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, okay, yes, I've cried at Rudy. But, hey, I'll be. I'll, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I probably cry. I'm, I'm sure I cried at Forrest Gump uh, because if if it's if it's somebody's sad, I get sad too. You live in South Carolina, so I gotta know what's on the Sunday dinner table. If, if I have anything to do with it, that's some pulled pork, some pulled chicken, some smoked sausage, anything I can throw on the smoker. Favorite poker hand. Nine seven of clubs because it is the hand that I played the absolute worst ever in the history of my poker career. My friends still laugh about it. I still try not to laugh about it, but do because I'd never played a hand worse. 
and I'm still working to play that hand better. Weirdest thing you ever gambled on? I once ate two Kino crayons for $400. That's the weirdest. The second weirdest was um, tossing slices of lime at long distances for money. Yes, no one can forget the World Series of Lime Tossing. Finally, if you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Uh, probably fallen asleep in the street somewhere after way too long a night somewhere. Um, and uh, they, you know, they, they probably could be forgiven for believing that. Emmy Award-winning reporter, investigative journalist, and lime-tossing 9-7 club plane, Brad Willis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real honor. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.